question for you guys. Have you ever messed things up big time with someone and wanted and even needed things to be right? Have you ever messed things up big time with someone and wanted and even needed things to be right? I mean, what's rule number one in that situation after repenting of your sin, turning from your sin, and then trusting in God? It is, rule number one, is do everything in your power to salvage the relationship. Do everything in your power to salvage the relationship. You do everything you can to let the other person know that you are in this. Willing to work things out. Willing to show repentance. You are ready to evidence commitment. And you're, you're ready to do that over the long haul. You are willing to humble yourself. You're willing to receive counsel and even criticism. You're willing to ask for prayer, to seek help, to clear out the schedule, to free up resources of time, of energy, of even money, to make things work. And if this is genuine, this is effort to be celebrated, right? This is effort to be celebrated. Well, in our passage this morning, this is what we see the people of God doing. They are doing everything they can to show their covenant commitment and obedience to the Lord. They are doing everything they can to show their own covenant commitment and obedience to the Lord. So this morning, we finish our series through the book of Exodus by looking at chapters 35 to 40. If you're using one of those black church Bibles in front of you, it can be found on page 75. And uh, as you turn, I'll give you a little bit of recap. Exodus is all about God forming for himself a new people, holy to his name. The first half, chapters 1 to 18, is all about God delivering his people out of slavery to Egypt. And the second half, chapters 19 to the end, God begins to form for himself his people into a kingdom. And God, the holy king, gives his people his good law. Right? He's making a kingdom. And that's chapters 19 to 23. And then, uh, and then like any good king would do, God promises that he would be with his people. I mean, his people had just escaped from Egypt. They're living in tents. And he is the good king. He's coming alongside. And he's saying, look, even though you are a nomadic people for a while, going to the kingdom that I promised, he said, I'm going to dwell with you as well in a tent and in a tabernacle. And so uh, he tells his people to build God a tabernacle, which is like a portable tent of worship. It's a dwelling place, so to speak, where God would meet with his people. This is the king going to be among his kingdom citizens. And our passage today is all about the people of God obeying God's commands to build him a tabernacle. A few weeks ago, we saw God as he gave the instruction on how to build the tabernacle and then also uh, the garments that the priests were to wear. That's chapters 26 to 31. And this morning we see God's people actually building the tabernacle and the clothing that they were to wear, the priests were to wear. That's chapters 35 to 40. Now you might ask, okay, well, what's the deal with the separation? He gives the commands, it ends in 31, and then here the people build it, it begins in 35. What's the deal with the separation? Why the gap? Well, it's because Israel had messed things up big time as they had committed spiritual adultery against their God. They had messed up their own covenant commitments. So as we go through our section today and then we see their obedience, we want to celebrate their obedience. And we do that this morning by looking at four facets of God-pleasing obedience. Four facets of God-pleasing obedience. Before we get there, if you are visiting with us, you know, you're exploring this Christianity thing, you want to get to know who this Jesus is uh, that maybe your friend always talks about, uh, you might be thinking like, what in the world did I get myself into? I came to explore Christianity, look into this Jesus, and now this preacher guy is talking about manufacturing Old Testament, Israelite, temple, furniture, and fashion? And, and, and he wants me to celebrate it? Well, the answer is yes, I do. I think that there is great reason to celebrate their covenant commitment to God. The reason why is because in God's dealings with his Old Testament people, Israel, he is teaching us about who he is. And not only that, though, but he's teaching us about who we are, because we as humans identify with Old Testament Israel. So we get to learn now about who this God is by looking at what he's done in the past with other people. 
We get to learn about ourselves because we get to see the failings of others and we identify with them in our own breaking of any sort of covenant promise you have made with other people. So I do want you indeed to celebrate Israel's covenant commitment because we learn about ourselves and we learn about God. Regarding who we are, you know, as we're identifying with the people, we mess things up too royally, don't we? Just like the Israel's, Israelites did, we do too. I mean, sure, maybe not in the same particular ways, uh, but our hearts are wayward just like theirs are. There was a time when they didn't care at all about what the Lord of the universe had to say about them. They didn't care about what their creator had to say. In fact, in some ways, it seemed as if in their disobedience, they were looking for commands to break when they sinned against God. You read Exodus, you see just how wayward they are. God delivers them out of slavery, but then they want to go back to slavery. They say, you know, it's just too hard in this desert. There's nothing to eat here, at least back in Egypt, where they wanted to kill us. At least then we had meat pots and vegetables, right? They're so willing to follow God, it seems, but only up to a certain point. Later on in the book of Exodus, God gives the people his good law, right? He's forming them into a kingdom. But as soon as they receive the law, they turn around and break the law. Right? So in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, I am the Lord your God. As he begins there, the, the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? He's giving them the law. And the way Exodus reads, it's like almost in the very next heartbeat they have, with the very next breath they take, they go on and create idols. Having gods before the one and only God. And then they do this. After the whole congregation pledges, mind you, they pledge, right? Okay, so before God gives them the law, this is what they pledge. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then God gives them the law. And then they celebrate it after the law. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then within 40 days, they're building a golden calf. We, like them, have committed this spiritual adultery. If you want to see the strength of your own commitment, just review all the promises that you have made and the promises that you've gone on and broken. If you are married or even let's say you, you, you have a loved one right now and you're pledging your love till the day you die, just think about how your own heart even goes towards lusting after other people. We know here this spiritual adultery. We know that the strength of our commitment is actually not very strong. We may not have worshipped physical idols, but in our sin, we choose to follow our own wills and not the will of God. This is really the essence of sin. Throwing off the authority of God over me and choosing for myself to be king. This is spiritual adultery. The Bible says that we all have committed. We are in sin. If you were, I mean, if, if you think uh, what God's position would have been like, his reaction to this spiritual adultery, I mean, like, what would you have done? What would you do if your loved ones committed adultery against you? Abandoned his or her vows to you? Tossed out all counsel and showed zero interest in keeping their covenant with you? What would your response be? You know what God does in the book of Exodus and the book of Genesis and in all the other scriptures all the way until the end? In an amazing act of righteous love, he reveals how adulterous their hearts are. And then he calls them to turn from their sin. And then in a humanly unimaginable move, God renews and reaffirms his great love for them. And so look over to 34, chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. 34, verses 5 and 6 here. God is meeting with Moses. This is Israel's representative. And look how God re he draws near to the suffering, sinful people who have just committed adultery against God himself. And this says, it says there, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Isn't that interesting there? The people sin against God, they commit spiritual adultery, but God in his grace and faithfulness, his mercy, 
comes alongside them and reaffirms his steadfast love to the people who had just committed adultery against them. And so the people learn here that God is God's love is so determined, it is so jealous, it is steadfast, it is resolved. And really right there is the climax of the whole entire book, a revelation of who God is to a sinful people. The people had abandoned God, but God had never abandoned his people. And then in 34, 27, go ahead and look over there. God reaffirms his covenant. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. It's like he's so eager to reaffirm his covenant that his people just broke. He's saying, let's do it again. Let's have another wedding ceremony, so to speak. Even though you have been unfaithful, I want to pledge my faithfulness to you. That's why, Christians, we celebrate their obedience. The Bible says that we all rebel against God's good authority and earn for ourselves his judgment even judgment in hell. But in the face of our unfaithfulness, God is nevertheless faithful. That is why the people here in our passage today are going, as we're going to see, are joyously obeying, doing everything they can to show that they are in this, even though they are the ones who have messed it up. So let's celebrate their obedience to the Lord Almighty by looking at four factors to God-pleasing obedience. Four factors of God-pleasing obedience. Number one, First, a God-pleasing obedience obeys the commands of God. Obeys the commands of God. Now, this is a, pretty obvious. You know, you can't please God unless you obey his commands. But nevertheless, we want to look at this. There is a God-word focus here to their obedience. There is a God-centeredness in their obedience. And we see that they have this change of heart. Before, they wanted God to wield his sovereignty for them, but it was for their own purposes. Now, as we're going to look at how they obey, we want uh, that we they see that they want God to wield his sovereignty over them as they submit to God over them. And if you look there at 35 verse one, this is kind of like the headline for all of the chapters. This is why our passage begins the way it does. Moses assembled the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Pause there. The rest of the passage speaks about them fulfilling the commands, them doing all these various things that the Lord had commanded. So in this, you see that they are wanting God over them. The rest of the passage emphasizes them doing the commands. Let's just look through this really briefly here. We certainly don't have time to read through all of it. Um, Look at 3510. You see here the call of Moses. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. There's a call. Uh, and then eventually you see uh, the, the craftsmen, they're going about their duty of making. This is the emphasis here. Look at 36.1. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Okay, these are the commands of God. And then look what the people do. Verse 8. And all that the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle. Look at verse 10. He coupled, that is, he did something. Verse 11, he made the curtain. And then verse 12, he made. And then in 14, he made also the curtains. Verse 20, he made the upright frames. Keep on going. Verse 31, he made the bars of acacia wood. Verse 35, he made the veil. Verse 37, Bezalel made the ark. Verse 10 of chapter 37, he also made. Verse 17, he also made. Verse 25, he also made made this just goes on and on and on the emphasis here is on them obeying god finally finally and then you go over to chapter 39 it gets even clearer here you see two things the lord's command and then also that they make uh from the blue and purple scarlet yarns is verse one they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place they made the holy garments for aaron as the lord had commanded moses 39 verse 2, he made the ephod, go all the way down to the bottom of the paragraph, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 6, they made the onyx stones, bottom of the paragraph, as the Lord had commanded Moses. This goes just, just goes on and on and on. You look there at the climax there in 42, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it. As the Lord 
had commanded. So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. You see the repetition there. It's there for a purpose. This isn't on accident. And really, every, uh, it's just the sequence that's laid out in, in previous where God lays out how to build it. Here, they're just carrying it out. They're fulfilling the commands of God there. And if you've been reading Exodus, you might have thought, well, you know, what's with the details, right? What's with the repetition? I mean, why couldn't they just say, right, they just made the stinking thing, period, and then we're on to the next book? Instead, though, they take such effort, God takes such effort to show us that their, their obedience in the minutia. That's just odd, isn't it? Well, I think there it communicates, once again, that they're willing to do everything they can that's in their power by God's grace to submit to his good rule, to submit to him, the Lord. I mean, they want him after all, right? This tabernacle is where God's glory and his presence is made known. And so they're throwing themselves into building it where they get to know God. So for you, Christian, I wonder, friends, if the story of your life, you know, at the end of time when God is sort of replaying your own story of life, I wonder if your life story would show obedience down to the very minutia of your own life, your daily activities. God is Lord over everything, isn't he? Would your bank statement, for example, show that he is Lord over your salaries? Would your words reflect that the Lord is Lord over your tongue? Would your leisure activity show that the Lord is Lord over your rest? Is the Lord the Lord over your mind and what you choose to think about and set your mind upon? Is he the Lord over your actions? Is he the Lord over your body parts? Lord over your eyes. Lord over your ears. Lord over your loves. If you're a man here, is he Lord over your leadership? If you're a woman here, is he Lord over your submission? And for all here, is he Lord over your suffering? I mean, does your obedience reflect a desire to have God over you, even in the minutia of your life? Or are there some things that you reserve that God cannot touch? I think that's a good reflection. It's a good evidence to know whether or not you really think God is the Lord. Is if he's Lord over even the small stuff or the stuff that you don't want him to touch. Here, friend, we are reminded to hear and do the word of the Lord because it is the word of our Lord. There might be some things that you are keeping away from God, but friend, if we know this God, that he is good, that he is gracious, that he is steadfast in love, then we hear and do the word of the Lord because He is the. it is the word of our good Lord, our loving Lord. The Lord who is ready to wield his sovereignty for you. The one who is pledged to be with us. And when we obey, we are to obey being secure in the love of God for us. So friends, do you doubt and wonder if God's commands are good? Or, 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 or is he too specific? You know, there's certain body parts of you, that you have that you don't want to hand to the Lord. And you think, no, surely God doesn't mean that I'm not supposed to have sex until I'm married. Or is God's law good because he is good? Friends, we are supposed to be secure in God's love for us and then obey in the security of that love. And if you want to see how, how far he goes to make things good to us, to reconcile us to him, we only need to look to Jesus Christ. You see God's sovereignty wielded for us as he sent his son to be with us and to deliver us from sin. Where the one who sustains the universe takes on the stuff of man in order to save man. That's a pledge of his love. I mean, consider God's covenant faithfulness towards us in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. And his faithfulness towards us is seen today as Christ gives his church his spirit to be with us. And in us as he forms us to be his New Testament people. So eventually, if you see God's sovereignty and his love wielded towards us, 
We come alongside of that and are secure in his love and then we then obey his good law. And so we respond even if we think his law, um, even if we doubt his good law, we nevertheless can respond, oh, how this God loves me. How good it is to walk in his ways. It is good to hear his word and do it even down to the very minutia of our lives. Even in our hearing and doing, we have opportunity to grow in our appreciation for God's sovereignty and his love and his goodness, don't we? I mean, ideally, as we obey our Lord, as he is commanded, we would learn to appreciate our Lord. Now, what I mean by that, you know, here my goal is to help us all uh, appreciate his character in the obedience, even when we doubt its goodness. So let, think about it this way, right? Uh, if I, let's say, take the kids for an entire day, I got four kids ready to dress in the morning. One kid's already a challenge. They come all mismatched. Uh, they're, they're wondering what exactly dad is doing. They wonder if dad has everything together. But I got to dress them. I got to care for them. I feed them. I school them. I corral them. I discipline them. I pay attention to them or try to have four conversations going on throughout the day. I play with them. Would I not be a fool to appreciate who my wife is and what she does in the midst of doing, in the midst of taking care of others, something that my wife does so well? Would I not be a fool to not appreciate all that my wife does in me following in her footsteps? In the midst of doing, I ought to be growing in my appreciation of her. So it is with God's good command, even down to the minutia where we might doubt as he commands us to love in the face of betrayal, as he commands us to give in the face of selfishness, as he calls us to forgive in the face of sin or be generous in the face of poverty, we learn a whole lot about God who does all of these things and more as we follow in his footsteps. So friends, where we, we might doubt and wonder, you know, does God really want me to walk in holiness? Is this good? To follow God's commands. Friend, we learn to appreciate who God is by walking in his footsteps and going to him saying, wow, how amazing is it that in the face of suffering, Jesus Christ still gives himself and loves. In the face of our own betrayal towards him, God nevertheless sends Jesus Christ and is faithful to die for sinners. In the face of our own selfishness, where we want to use God for our own benefit, God nevertheless says, I'm going to give you myself for your own good. And where we might claim his throne and even seek to kill him, he says, yes, I will step down from my throne in order to show you what true love looks like. So we, we have the opportunity here, even to where we might doubt and even where we might struggle. We have the opportunity to grow in our love and appreciation for all that God has done by here walking in his commands, obeying his commands. Is God pleasing obedience because we obey God's commands. We learn how to love like he loves. That's the first thing. Second thing, a God-pleasing obedience involves all of God's people. A God-pleasing obedience involves all of God's people. Here we can celebrate their obedience because all of the people of God are, are obeying here as we, as we read. And this is an emphasis. Look there in 35 verse 4. 35 verse 4. Here Moses calls the congregation uh, to do what the Lord has commanded. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel. This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, and goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and, and the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Here he's just calling people to give so that they might build what God had commanded. But did you notice there that it's all the congregation? And then you got there in verse 20. Look there. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. They went and got all the stuff and they went and brought it back to give to Moses and then to give to the other people there, the people who were skilled, gifted by God to actually build the tabernacle. You have the men. You look there in 22. So they came both Men and women is underscored there. You look there, verse 27. And the leaders 
brought various things. So you have the men, you have the women, you have the leaders. Everybody is, is contributing here to the worship of God. All of the people. And they bring it to Bezalel and the Holy Ab and all the craftsmen in order that they might build the tabernacle in effort to meet with God. You remember that previously, it was not all the people that were worshiping God. The kingdom was a kingdom divided. Some had worshipped the Lord and some had worshipped idols. And those who worshipped idols, what does the Bible say about them? It says that all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron in order to make the golden calf. All of the people there participating in idolatry. It says there they brought these things to Aaron, the great, wise, and gifted one, who used his God-given skill to carve a golden calf, an idol. Before, they were tolerating sin and participating in sin, but here, Moses leads the people to obedience. We got men, you have the women there, you have the leaders as well, bringing everything to the craftsmen so they might build in the power of God, using the gifts of God. Once again, before they were a kingdom divided, but here they're a kingdom united, Desiring God over them and God with them. All of them participate eagerly, seeking the, the worship of God, the presence of God. Right, so first they desire God over them, this is obedience to God's law. And second, all of them participate in the worship of God. So as we apply this here, as we apply this passage to our church, I wonder if God looks down and sees us as a united church. Does God look down and see us as a united church with all of our members laboring and obeying to the great end of meeting with God and displaying his character? I mean, this is exciting, right? If, if, if you've been walking through the book of Exodus, their obedience is exciting. Because you know what has gone on in the past. Their, their spiritual adultery, but God nevertheless pursues them. And then here at the end, everybody is participating in the worship of God. And so, friends, it should be exciting for us, too. First, for the New Testament church, for us, we who are truly Christians have the spirit of Christ in us. So we labor together to see Christ exalted. The spirit helps us grow in holiness. We grow to love Christ more. We grow in loving like Christ more. And then secondly, the Bible says that God has given specific gifts to all of his people. So you, you think of Belial and Aholiab and all the other craftsmen. They're just busy making things in effort to see God glorified. Well, friends, this is a little showcase of what's going to happen for the New Testament church. As it says there that Christ gives gifts to every single one of his people as he himself has set apart as his grace has determined to see his name proclaimed among the nations. Friends, does the Lord find you busy in a good way? Busy in God glorifying others focused obedience in your participation in the local church where you think not about growing and learning only for yourselves but seeing other people grow in jesus christ where you come to church thinking how can i do other people around me spiritual good did you think about that this morning as you woke up as you got ready to come to church or did you not think about that at all? And you just said, hey, you know, I hope I get something out of church. Did you think about this last night? About how maybe you can be praying for uh, us as we all come and gather to hear God's word. As we know that this word goes forward, so his spirit does as well. To conform us into the image of Christ. Or did, hey, did gathering together with God's people not really come across your mind? I must say that uh, as I look and you know hear what's going on in the congregation and then also as i know what's going on in the congregation by god's grace i see this happening more and more and more uh, now you might not be able to see it but i definitely see it happening and i know you know if you know yourself we don't do this perfectly you know we don't love perfectly but nevertheless i see this going on more and more as other people are others focused more of us become others focused and want to do other people's spiritual good hospitality for example i see more of this going on than i did two years ago and it's not just because we have more people i see more people moved by god and the spirit to reach out to, for, to one another and so i regularly have conversations with you guys coming to me saying hey this situation is going on how can i help this other person 
Praise God. I see people caring for one another. I see more people involved in other people's lives. I see more people wanting to encourage one another in the Lord. And so in many ways here as I talk about, uh, as I encourage you guys to love more, I feel like I say this in the spirit of uh, Paul when he writes in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, I don't need anyone to tell you to love because Jesus has already taught you. And this is in fact what you're doing. He goes on to say, well, do this all the more. That's the type of encouragement I feel like I'm giving. I see it happening and I want it to happen all the more because we don't do this perfectly here. Now, if you are thinking, okay, well, how exactly am I to be uh, others focused in my participation of a local church? Uh, you might feel intimidated. You might feel like, well, you just walked into the church and maybe you consider yourself a young Christian, however you might define that. Maybe you are a new Christian and therefore you think that only the mature Christians can do this. Only the mature Christians can love. Well, friends, this is simply not true. This is not true. Any Christian, no matter what they struggle with, can bring glory to Jesus Christ in the church. How is it that that can happen? All that is required is that you see your need for Jesus Christ. All that is required is that you see your need for Jesus Christ. If you see your need for Christ in your times of spiritual depression and serious serious struggle and what you're going to do is recognize i need that grace and i'm going to go and seek it out you're going to reach out to christ's people christ's people who are going to remind you of the grace and the power of the gospel and in the midst of that in your brokenness as you come to church seeking help seeking a reminder of god's grace who is glorified it's jesus christ what is uplifted is the grace of christ in your weakness, all that you need is to see your need for Jesus Christ and you help others spiritually. And then again, if you see your need for Christ in your times of spiritual strength, then you will want others to find that same strength in Jesus Christ. If you see your need for the grace of Christ, who is glorified there? Jesus Christ. So one way that you can participate in God glorifying others focused obedience to christ is to see your need of christ and to get involved and share your struggles with other people and seek out encouragement in the gospel if you consider yourself a strong christian then make sure others are rooted in that same grace that you yourself know so well another practical way we as a congregation remain united is by practicing meaningful church membership you didn't think church membership was an exodus but it is or at least an application of Church membership is all about protection and the preservation of gospel unity. And that's actually what's going on in the book of Exodus. Because there were some, like yeast, for example, that leavens a whole lump of dough. They were starting to spread. I mean, just think about those people who wanted to go towards idolatry. And so they were recruiting others in Israel towards worshiping a false god. And so God, he comes along and says, well, we can't stand for that because I alone am God. Well, friends, in the New Testament church membership, meaningful church membership, we strive to preserve that gospel unity. I mean, imagine what would happen if we took into membership those who rejected Jesus and his commands. Just stop there for one second and say, hey, what if we had no membership practices and we took in people who rejected Jesus Christ? who had a hatred towards Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't follow Jesus Christ, we are glad you're here. I'd be happy to talk to you more about who Jesus is and walk through a, a Bible study with you about the claims of Christ according to his word. I'm sure anybody here would do the same. But attending church and visiting, or sorry, attending the church and the membership in the church are two very different things. So once again, if you're visiting, we're glad you can join us together, join us here. But for membership, for us, membership means that you now take responsibility for the doctrine of the church and also for the discipline of the church for doctrine and discipline so if you are now wanting to embrace this responsibility which eight of you are as you or more of you are as you want to pursue church membership you know we have to make sure that you are a right confessor that is you have the right doctrine a right or sorry you we have to make sure that you have the right confession the right confession that jesus christ is lord and everything that that comes with and we want to make sure that you are a true confessor, that you actually follow Jesus Christ. You actually embrace his call on your life and you bear the fruits of the spirit of Jesus Christ. So we want to make sure that you have the right confession. Jesus Christ is Lord. And we also want to make sure that you are a true confessor, 
that you live according to Christ's commands. So in our membership class, we go over our statement of faith. We also go over the church covenant and other convictions of the church. And, and then when we practice congregationalism, so uh, for those of you visiting, there's a little peek into what we do when we bring people into church membership. Uh, I sit down after the, after the uh, membership class, and I have an interview with the people uh, wanting to join. And then we go through what the gospel is so we can keep gospel preservation, gospel protection, so we can be agreeing on what Jesus has actually done on the cross. Uh, and then after that interview, or after the gospel, then we talk about how you yourself have uh, been converted, how you've been saved, how you're bearing spiritual fruit. And then eventually I bring uh, a one-minute testimony of how you become a Christian to the congregation. And then the members of the church, you actually vote. Now, I haven't said this in a sermon but uh, um, when you vote, it is not a popularity contest. So in November, Lord willing, you guys are going to be bringing in an additional, maybe uh, five, six, seven, eight people into church membership. When you vote, after I read a one-minute testimony, leave out juicy details that everyone does not need to know, I read the testimony, and you vote, uh, you are taking the responsibility upon yourself that the person that you're bringing into church membership is a true confessor and has the right confession it's not a popularity contest but you are taking the responsibility upon yourself to do these things as first Corinthians 5 for example says that the discipline of the church the membership of the church is uh, on the people it's response the responsibility of the people and that's the practice of congregationalism the beauties of congregationalism that is us the members of first baptist church independence upon god's spirit protecting and preserving the gospel and we strengthen our corporate witness to jesus christ his character and his ways the practical way that we as a congregation labor together to see christ lifted up so then if something were to happen uh, let's say for example that i commit sin and you guys have to discipline me you therefore are telling everybody around you what it means to be a christian you remind them say no actually jesus christ cares about holiness he actually cares about following his commands. And let's say, you know, I'm uh, committed adultery, for example. You tell your neighbors. You say, hey, actually, no, God cares about his holiness. He cares about faithful love. That's what happens when you guys take on responsibility and practice congregationalism. And as we labor in unity to see the gospel protected. Third thing, a God-pleasing obedience is an obedience of the heart. It is an obedience of a heart. Another reason why this is celebrated here. Notice there, in, did you notice there in 35 verses 4 to 9 um, that uh, the emphasis there is on, look at verse 5, go ahead there. Look there, 35, 5. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of generous heart. Generous heart. And 35, 20 to 29, I'll just go ahead and read this whole entire section here. And notice again, the emphasis is on the genuineness of the heart, obedience of the heart. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns of fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it to the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands and they all brought what, the Lord, what, ha, what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill, spun the goat's hair, and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. That's a lot of minutia. Main point here is that their hearts are stirred. The Spirit is moving them. All who were of willing heart. And then you go over to 36, 2 through 7. And uh, there you continue to see that. This, these are free will offerings. 
And they continue in that section, they continue to give and they give and they give until they have more than enough. I mean, this underscores all the more that people, the people's desire to have God over them and God with them and God go before them. And all this is freely given because they know that they get to meet with God. No tabernacle, no presence of God. And so they're giving and giving of their own free will. Do you remember God had, he had stated that he was going to remove his presence because he was going to judge the people. But then Moses pleaded the presence of God. He said, no, will you do what you have promised? And then God helps Moses to desire what God himself desires. And then here he's promising his presence. He said, yes, I will give you my presence if you would build the tabernacle. So, as we seek to apply this to our church, we see the Israelites give freely. Well, friends, this should check our own hearts and wonder and get us to examine our own giving of the heart. Now, certainly this applies to all sorts of participation in the church, but uh, we want to focus particularly of giving, the aspect of giving. And I pray that it is of the heart. In fact, in our pastoral prayer, uh, I'm always ending it praying that we would give out of cheerful hearts. And that just comes straight out of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 7, Paul tells us there in 2 Corinthians 9 to not give reluctantly. He says, don't be stingy or uh, don't give unwillingly. He also says, don't give under compulsion, as if the church were somehow forcing you guys to give. I mean, just imagine what a silly scene it would have been for the Israelites to hear the Lord's command to build uh, the tabernacle and then to have the Israelites give reluctantly. Oh, you know, my gold earrings, you know what? I can really use those as we wander in the desert. All the purple garments and the blue garments and all the wood that we got out of Egypt. I really need those things to live. You know, the, the thought is, I mean, some of you guys know this. You're, you're clinging to your wallets as if there's death involved. And maybe there's, maybe there are legitimate reasons that go behind that. Maybe you grew up uh, and your family was constantly stressed about money. And so there's a lot of things that are attached to it. But the idea is, hey, I worked for this and therefore I need it and it is mine. But friends, you remember for the Israelites, you remember who gave them all the stuff in the first place? Where they actually got all of the stuff that they walked out of Egypt with? It is all by God's gift. There in Exodus 12, verse 35. You can go ahead and turn over there. Exodus 12, verse 35. It says there, 1235, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. So the Israelites are turning to their Egyptian neighbor and say, hey, can we have some stuff? <clears throat> and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. I mean, the temptation is to think right in the middle of the desert that all their stuff is actually theirs when in reality it is actually all gods that's why it's so silly for them to give reluctantly because somehow they've gotten to thinking that they they actually own the stuff and then here if we are if we feel like we are uh forced to give here paul tells us we shouldn't give being com, uh, compelled to give we shouldn't give out of compulsion it's equally silly to think that god is somehow the big bad tax man coming to take away what is rightly his apart from a relationship no god comes god gives everything to us and so he is not like a big bad tax man but a father working with his sinful children getting them to see their idolatries working with them step by step of by step getting them to hold loosely to the things of the world even their very own money friends you know why god loves a cheerful giver it's because the christian who gives cheerfully recognizes that he is just a temporary steward a temporary steward of the things of god to see that god's will would be done here and now in this church and then in the all in the, in the social circles that you're in where you spend your money the, uh, the people that you give your money to 
So if you have the mentality that you are a mere steward of the things of God, then you will give freely, you will give wisely, and with the intention to see other people blessed. <clears throat> you know, one, ways in wh- one way in which I have seen this happen here in this congregation <clears throat> um, is uh, this one particular man uh, whose name rhymes with Oni, uh, also known as Tony. <clears throat> I've seen him take newlyweds out. I've been so encouraged by you. Uh, and, and I don't tell you this because I want you guys to flock to him. <clears throat> but I've seen him take people out and just give people money. Hey, you guys are newlyweds. I just give you some money. I take you out to eat. That's great. Wonderful thing to do. And so my dad has been an encouragement to me of what it looks like to wisely steward God's resources to see God's people blessed. And that's awesome. My mother does it. My mother-in-law does this too. And I could go on and talk about all the things she does as well. Who's visiting with us today. Huge encouragement. And friends, if you guys look at our budget, <clears throat> you know that you too have been giving sacrificially because we are over our expected uh, tithes and offerings. Friends, that comes because God himself is working in your hearts, teaching you to hold loosely to see that God's will would be done here in this church. And friends, I know that's happening amongst you because I have conversations with you about how you have been tempted to keep what is God's and hoard it for yourself, but instead you give it to other people. Hugely encouraged by this. I encourage you to do this all the more. And as you think about, if you not think about how much to give and things like this, I have an encouragement for you. And this is not law. This is just an encouragement. You won't find this in the Bible anywhere. Once again, this is merely you know, wisdom that's been passed on to me. Somebody a number of years ago encouraged me to start with 10%. Uh, and then every year that goes by, just give 1% more. And the, the reason why we do this is to teach ourselves what it looks like to hold loosely the things of the world. Um, now, some of you guys might be in a place, some of you guys, I don't know, maybe you're billionaires. You might be in a position to give maybe 75% away. Great, praise God. Others of you, if you were to actually look at percentages after all of your responsibilities are met, maybe you've got to pay off loans, maybe you've got other family responsibilities, maybe you're sending money back home because you're trying to keep people alive back there, maybe you can give 5%. Great! The Bible says that you should give out of a cheerful heart. Just determine what you should give, friend, and just give out of a grateful heart. That's really, uh, generally speaking and quickly speaking, uh, the Bible summary on what it looks like to give. I mean, everything we have is of God. So you can use that everything in a whole lot of ways. Not just little percentages here. It's a whole entire life should be given to God. Okay, so then the question becomes, well, what if I don't feel it in the heart, right? This point is all about uh, in the heart. What if I don't feel it in the heart? Does God still delight in our actions, so we might ask, you know, what if I'm not sincerely going to church? What if I don't feel it in my heart towards God? Should I still do it? The answer, friends, is yes. You should still do it. So think about it this way. If I come to you and I, in a moment of struggle and I say, you know what? I do not want to keep unto Melanie until the day I die. I'm going to break my covenant. I just don't really feel like doing it. Not sincere of heart. I hope, Christian, that you are going to tell me, no, you should really still do it. <laughs> even though your heart might not be in it. I hope you would tell me to do it anyway. Keep your covenant anyway, but do it in faith, praying that God would change your heart in the midst of doing things. You know that that still honors God very much so? That's just saying, look, I'm going to do this. At the moment, I don't have faith, uh, but Lord, give me more faith. I believe, but help my unbelief. You can still do that, friend. If some of you here are thinking like, gosh, you know, I don't really want to be here at church. You can, you can still do this, trusting that God will work as he is determined to work. That he will work where he has said he would work. Remember that God is the one who's designed the very spiritual disciplines that we are to set ourselves to. Like reading the Bible. Like praying. Like giving, like turning up to church. He himself has designed these things. And he says that he would work according to his spirit in those very things if we are doing them in faith. Even if our hearts aren't in it. Now friends, this too, I can point to many different examples. I've been encouraged by your obedience. 
I've talked to some of you recently. You say, you know what? I did not want to come to church. I woke up and I just was not feeling it. You know, church was, you know, five miles away and I didn't particularly feel like going to church. But yet you came and you loved it. You came and you were reminded of the gospel. I met with somebody here who said that, look, in the workplace, he was tempted to, to be dishonest and to steal. And I love the honesty. I love that. And then you said that you were honest and God honored that. Praise God. I mean, that's just the reality of the Christian life. We struggle. We might not want to do things because of our own sin, but yet we do it in faith. We trust and we obey even to the minutia. And the Lord is honored in those things. Friends, we can, you can still do it even though you don't want to. You do it in faith, praying that the Lord will change your heart in the midst of it. So to recap here, God-pleasing obedience obeys the commands of God. God-pleasing obedience involves all of God's people. And the God-pleasing obedience is of the heart. Fourth, God-pleasing obedience obeys based in the grace of God. A God-pleasing obedience obeys based in the grace of God or obeys in the grace of God. So we can celebrate here their obedience really because it is evidence of the grace of God. Friends, the entire Exodus account reminds us of the sovereign grace of God to sinners. And so all of this doing here, we recognize it is evidence and an opportunity that has been brought about by the grace of God. God chooses Moses. Just think about God's sovereign grace in the book of Exodus. God chooses Moses. He complains. But yet God is gracious to him. God delivers the people. They complain. And yet God is gracious to them. Though the people break God's law, God continues to be with them. Though they have wayward, adulterous hearts, yet God continues to love them. Friends, in our passage today, we see that same exact theme, but in a very personal and intimate way here at the end. I I find this section really fascinating. You look at verse 40. Or sorry, chapter 40. After all of the weeds of Exodus, as you guys might consider this, as some of us might consider this, after talking about all of the inanimate objects that are to be made, here God calls them now to place them. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1 of chapter 40, The Lord spoke to Moses, On the first day of the month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put it in the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting and and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then keep on going. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it on all of its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stands and consecrate it. Pause right there. You realize what's going. This, This glorious thing is finally being built. Where God himself and all of his glory is going to descend upon it in the cloud, just as he did at Mount Sinai, and the people will meet with God. And so here God tells everybody, tells them to just set it up exactly like I have determined it. And then he zeroes in on an animate object. Verse 12. Then you shall bring Aaron. He sets up his whole entire holy place and then the most holy place. And he says, you bring me that sinner. And that man will go into the midst of the holy place to meet with God. And so you're left wondering, well, how exactly does that work? Because Aaron is still a sinner. And you look there at verse 12, then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and you shall wash them with water, right? That's symbolic of purification and put on Aaron all the holy garments. So now he's decked out in this holy garb and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priests. You shall bring his sons also and put on coats 
and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. The oddness of the whole thing is that he is symbolically pure, but he is internally evil. Internally, he is wayward. Internally, he is still a sinner. And yet the sinner is being called into the presence of God. And not only individually called into the presence of God, but he's supposed to serve on behalf of all the rest of God's people and bringing their cares and concerns before God, atoning for their sacrifices. He, he was the man who had led them into a great sin. And here, nevertheless, he is charged to lead all of God's people to great worship. I mean, how does that happen? Well, friends, it happens all by the grace of God, by his mercy and steadfast love, and by his own unwavering commitment to fulfill his own promises. God chooses to dwell with sinners. I mean, that's the whole story of the Exodus, isn't it? That God nevertheless pursues and pursues and pursues. And friends, of course, this points to Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, God the Son comes to dwell with sinners. That's strange. Here you have Aaron serving as the high priest, serving on behalf of God's people. But we see, friends, that it points us to Jesus. While Aaron is outwardly pure, he is still a sinner. He's still a man in need. He's a man in need of righteousness that he can't produce himself. This is why Aaron here, he makes atonement for the sins of the people. And he makes atonement for his own sins as well, according to the book of Leviticus and then Hebrews 7. This, of course, points us to Jesus, who effected true and a lasting atonement for sins, because he himself was sinless. Church, the whole entire Exodus account, in fact, all of the scriptures reveal the fact that we are a people in need. We can't produce a righteousness on our own, and so we rely on a righteousness outside of ourselves. We need deliverance. Not ultimately from a bad nation, but from our own sin. We are a people who need God's good rule over us. And we need God to be with us as a king is with his people. We need God's good law because we cannot rule ourselves. We made a terrible mess of things in our own sin without God pursuing our own desires. And we need a way to deal with sin. And so even there we look to Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of atonement who died on the cross for our sins. Friends, the book of Exodus is about our obedience, or sorry, it's about our disobedience. And here we look, at even, even here we celebrate obedience. On one level, we look and see everything that the Israelites are doing to make things right. But friends, we look at the whole, all of scripture, all of salvation history, and we see really how everything is about how God does everything in his own sovereignty and power to keep the covenant, even when you break it. Even helping his people in their own helplessness. Giving us his very own spirit to help us keep our side too. It is about the sovereign God wielding his sovereign goodness to love and save sinners. Sending Jesus Christ to live a perfect life that God demanded. Sending Jesus Christ to die on the sins, to, to die on the cross, to bear our sins and the wrath that we deserve. To die the death so that we would not have to. And then three days later, he got up from the dead, showing all that payment hasn't been made. And now reconciliation is open to all who would repent of their sins and believe. So, friends, this is for you if you're visiting with us. And you know yourself to be a breaker of promises, to go against God's good law. Jesus says that all salvation is open to all who would repent of their sins and believe. So, friend, if that's you and you have not repented, turn from your sins and believe, do that now. And know the steadfast love of God. Despite the fact that we break covenant commitment, he keeps it as a wonderful display of his love. We can look to Jesus Christ. Friends, in conclusion, in short, we need God's saving and restoring grace. We need God to be who he is and to do what he alone can. We need God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Regardless of all of Israel's ups and downs, as well as our own, regardless of our own wavering, our indecision and flat-out rebellion, friends, God is faithful. For Old Testament Israel, as God was forming them into a nation and bringing them into their own land, He had promised to be with them. 
And so there, look there at Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. This is the final resolution where God fulfills all of his promises to Israel. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Turn over to Exodus chapter 29. You see here that this is just a fulfillment of God's promise to be with his people. You look there at 29 verse 43. Here God speaks about him descending upon the tabernacle. Looking forward to when he would come and give his presence in this unique way. He said, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. As we look at this wonderful book of Exodus and come to its conclusion, we see finally that the people, at least at the end of Exodus, realize that this is the Lord who is sovereign over all, and the God, no doubt, who is with his people and keeps his covenant faithfulness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that even as we, as your people, strive for obedience, we recognize that even that is by your grace. We recognize that even our best deeds are still like dirty rags to you, they're worthless. So, Lord, how awesome is it that by your grace you give us opportunities to obey, you give us good works in which we are to walk, as your word says, and you even give us the strength to do it. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be exalted in our obedience as we walk after you, as we desire to display your glory to the watching world. Lord, we pray that we would depend absolutely on your grace. Help us live in holiness as we pursue the glory, your glory, among the nations. In your name we pray. Amen.